This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The population of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania is just over 21,000. The population is 90% white. Residents tend to vote Republican. But in the last year, something changed. An African-American man, a Democrat, is running for mayor and doing well. This is, this, is a, this is a new beginning, and I'm asking people to trust me that it is time, and it requires all of us, not some of us. Businessman Marvin Worthy and his wife Linda are working on building something purple. Blue plus red equals purple. We just want to be sure that everybody has a voice at the table, and I think that we're starting to bring people around in terms of the message that we're sending. We're really trying to build this community together. Regardless of how the election comes out, the story of Marvin and Linda Worthy and Chambersburg is remarkable. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Darren Brown is Native American. His mother and father are Cochiti. They met at a hospital, and then the story gets really complicated. Well, you know, they got to talk, and you know how it goes, one thing led to another. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she became pregnant. Before he was born, she left and went to Oklahoma City and had her child there. And then she put me up for adoption and went back to work as if nothing had happened. And, uh, my biological father said, hey, where have you been? Uh, she said, hey, I, I got pregnant. I didn't, I didn't think that you wanted to deal with that the way you're acting, yada, 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 and had a child, almost, I, I almost died. And he said, well, where is our child? And she said it died. But I'm here to tell you, JJ, I am here. I'm good to go. Alive and kicking. Um, yeah. And imagine their surprise when he showed up decades later after being raised in a white family. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting in Justice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. cisgender woman living in Northeast Pennsylvania. My name is Jerry. I'm an African-American from Bowie, Maryland, by way of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. My name is Sara Kamali. I'm a first-generation American whose parents were born in Afghanistan. My name is Shelby Steele. I never give my ethnicity. I am located at the moment in Encino, California. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. Darren Brown is a Native American, and he's a news and television professional. He's been working in the business since 1987. He's a talented writer and producer and editor with a passion for quality and enjoys educating tribal youth in television production. He was adopted. He was raised by a white family in Oklahoma, but he wanted to know who his birth parents were, and he set out on an incredible journey that he shares with us on colors. It is such a pleasure to talk to you today, Darren. 
A part of the reason why is because of your personality, which is outgoing, but you're a fellow journalist. And uh, one of the things we've tried to do on Color so many times is we've tried to illuminate the stories of Native Americans. We have uh, white folks. We have black folks. We have Asian folks. We have uh, Latin folks. We have people of a lot of different uh, ethnic backgrounds. And one of the key things that we want to do here in America on this program, which is a dialogue on race in America, is give the original Americans their due on the platform. And it's been difficult to find Native Americans willing to do this. So I thank you for being willing to chat with us. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So while we were talking to prepare for this, you told me your story, which I thought was really unusual. You know, your parents and your your growing up and all of that. And I just wonder if you would share with us your story, starting from the very beginning, and uh, we'll go from there, because I think it's really a remarkable story. Well, sure. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> when I tell it, it's, it's, it's hard to tell in a short amount of time, but I'll, I'll see if I can boil it down here. I am adopted. I, uh, uh, here's the deal. My, my mother was born and raised my biological mother, born and raised in Cochiti, Pueblo. And she became a nurse. I believe she attended Baylor University. Mm-hmm. And she went to work for uh, an Indian hospital in southeastern Oklahoma. Southeastern Oklahoma is, um, is Choctaw country. There are 39 tribes, 39 federally recognized tribes here in Oklahoma. Um, but that's down where the Choctaws are. And she met uh, a man who worked there and well, you know, they got to talk and you know how it goes. One thing led to another. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she became pregnant. But before I, I like I said, and I've had to, you know, kind of get both sides of the story, which was difficult to do. And as it turns out, she before she started showing, she left abruptly and went to Oklahoma City. She only told like uh, two had two uh, uh, women, two friends that she knew. I'm sorry, a, a, a friend and, a, and an older sister. She went to Oklahoma City and had her child there. Uh, and I, as I understand, she had uh, sort of a difficult pregnancy toward, toward right before childbirth, so it wasn't easy. And then she put me up for adoption and went back to work as if nothing had happened. Uh, hmm. Now, <laughs> my biological father said, hey, where have you been? Uh, she said, "Hey, I, I got pregnant. I didn't. I, I didn't think that you wanted to deal with that the way you were acting. Yada yada yada. And you know, I had had a, I had a child, almost died. I, I almost died. And he said, "Well, where is our child?" And she said, "It died." But I'm here to tell you, JJ, I am here. I'm good to go. Alive and kicking. Um, yeah. And so um, I was adopted at three weeks old uh, by a. a a, a Caucasian couple in the tiny town of Frederick, Oklahoma, which is the, down in Southwest Oklahoma is just uh, this side of the North Texas border. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, who they had trouble having children of their home. So um, that, that's where I grew up. I, we moved to a suburb of Oklahoma city later and I graduated from uh, there, but I, I like to say I came up in that little town that I, where I grew up in that little town, but I came up in the other one. And um, so 
I think this is where it really gets interesting because, and I'm not going to short you out of your story. There's a lot of things that happen, and we can talk about some of these other things. But the thing that got interesting to me, aside from you know the the difficult story that you've told so far, the thing that uh, that I was really drawn to was, as you grew up, you decided you wanted to know who your real parents were. Is that right? Yes, and that's so, right. Um, go ahead. No, so you wanted to know who your real parents were. So what happened? Well, uh, now it, my my parents, the people I call them, well, my mother. Both my mothers have passed since now. I'm sorry. But my, um, I, uh, obviously, they told me from the beginning, hey, you're adopted, you're special, and that's why you're here. And uh, it, it was obvious to me and everyone else that we weren't the same colors. So, and it was a small town. So everyone was like, hey, there goes the Browns with their little Indian boy, and isn't he cute, yada, yada, you know. Um, after we moved up uh, uh, to Midwest City, Oklahoma, um, I was able to get a court order to get my original birth certificate. Most people don't realize that when you're born, you have a, a birth certificate. But if you're adopted, then you have another one. Uh, and then that takes a place. That's the one you use. And that one has your adoptive parents on it. That's the one I had. But I did get this other one who had my mother's uh, name on it, which I was blown away. I, I never knew that. And that was sometime when I was probably in college. Um, but I will tell you that I was adopted through a, a, a group called Catholic Charities. And this was before, I'm, I'm born in 1965. So this was before ICWA, which is the in, um, Indian Child Welfare Act, which I think came on the book sometime in the Carter administration. I'm not quite sure. But that kind of says that, you know, tribes have, uh, in life, for lack of a better word, they have a right to, to raise a child who is of their, of their tribe rather than and sending it to adoption, you know, mainstream adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was adopted before that. And so anyway, I, uh, I was a closed adoption. This organization wouldn't give me any info. All they said was, well, we can take your information, put it in a file. If your mother wants to check it out at some point, then we can, we'll try to contact you that way. And I said, that does me no good. So I really had to sit on this information for a long time until uh, what's, you know, the one thing that, uh, you know, that little thing called the Internet that we all take for granted now. <laughs> yes. If you'll remember, it wasn't around until really the mid 90s. 90s. Yeah. And that's when I was able to put in that name and just search. And, um, you know, I, I, I found, like I said, I put in the name and I just I came up with a whole list and I said, you know what? I'm just going to start calling people. (laughs) And that's what happened. And uh, as it turns out, I had hoped to find, you know, come across a cousin or a relative or someone who knew what I was talking about. As it turns out, no one knew except my, pardon me, my mother and this older sister. And uh, eventually I got hold of someone who said, I have uh, an aunt who lives in Oklahoma and I tracked her down. She had been married since, and I basically made a cold call. And that was, uh, wow. You know, and she, uh, uh, she was, you know, kind of like, uh, humming, humming, humming. And I said, I said, look, look, let me tell you, here's the deal. This is a lot to, to throw at you. I said, how about, let me, let me call you tomorrow at the same time. 
And if you don't want to take it any further, that's fine. But I don't, I don't want to invade your life. I just want to, I just want a couple answers. Mm-hmm. And so the next day when I got in touch with her, you know, it was a, it was a ball fest all around, you know, everybody was, she's crying. I'm crying. It's just, it turned out really well. Now this, and this, this was your aunt you're talking to. No, my mother, my mother. The, okay. So I didn't yeah. get that. So this, I'm sorry. She, I'm sorry. She had told, um, she had told an older sister, but I, I was not able to find a relative who could like act as a go between. So I had to make a cold call. So you made a cold call to your mother. Yeah. <laughs> what was what was that like? It like I said when we, when she agreed, you know, to that that she was my mother, and I had all the dates right, the names right. Um, you know, I can only imagine what she um, was going, what was going through on, in her head. I mean, I had prepared myself for for weeks and months and years, but she hadn't. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'll tell you what was really, what was really, uh, heartwarming is that she said, well, now I've got to tell some family members. And so I swear for the next probably three days, my phone was just constantly ringing people saying, Hey, Darren, this is your uncle. So-and-so this is your cousin. So-and-so welcome to the family. When are you going to come out? You know? And that was really cool. So, um, (laughs) You went through this with your mother, this conversation, this initial conversation. Do you remember the date and time? And how long did the conversation last? And when it, when the conversation was over, what did you think and what did you do? It was sometime in the spring of 1997. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, you know, my wife was like, are you ready for this? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. And you know, it, 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 it was a good, probably, you know, uh, maybe hour and a half to two hour long conversation. And it was a lot of, um, it was, I'll tell you, it was a lot of her just pouring out all this guilt that she had and me, it was a lot of me saying, that's okay. We're, I, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a lot of that. And, uh, you know, uh, that was 97 and, um, she passed in 2001. Sorry. And yeah, thank you. Uh, it's real quickly within that shortly after that, she moved back home to her home in Cochitina, New Mexico. And shortly after that, I took a job in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I was working in Oakland city at the time. And so Albuquerque is only an hour away from where she lives. So um, from 99, the last two years of her life, uh, we, we went to go visit her like once, maybe twice a month. And at the time, my son was about a year or two old. So that was really cool. She got to see, you know, she didn't have any other kids. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we, we went and saw her quite often the last two, yeah, two years of her life. And like yeah. I said, uh, before she passed and, and my, my daughter was born in Albuquerque just a week or so before she passed and she got to see her, which was, I thought was real. I, you know, I was, I was hoping that would happen. She got to see my, my, my daughter before, before she passed. Now, was your mother native American or what was her background her ethnicity? She's born and raised in Cochitee. So she was a native American. Yes. At my, my birth mother. Yes. Okay. So we've only talked about half of this story. 
The other half of the story <laughs> is your father's half. So, uh, can you will are you willing to share with us um, how or have you connected with your father? And are you willing? I actually to have. I actually have. Um, let's let's see. Let's see. He um, I, well, the, the, as it turns out, when I found my mother in '97, she lived in a small town in southeastern Oklahoma, and when you know, as I was on these phone conversations with her, she said, well, you need to meet your dad. And I said, oh, wow. You mean he's alive too? And she said, yeah, he just lives down, <laughs> down the street. So he was living in that same small town as she was. And they, but they had like, basically uh, were giving each other the cold shoulder or he was, she was anyway, all these years. Wow. <laughs> and I did meet him and he obviously was you know, taken aback by the whole thing, but he and his family were very welcoming to me. And, uh, as, as since, uh, I, I've actually, I keep in contact, but he's, he's not active on social media, but his wife is. Mm -hmm. And so I talked with her and, you know, this past year, because, uh, you know, the pandemic's kind of screwed thing up and not screwed things up. And I was, um, furloughed for just a little bit. So, uh, I, I took my son and my daughter, uh, down out to him and we, he's, he's 90, 91 or 92 now. And he basically, he met his only, uh, my, my son is his only blood grandson. Um, I have a hat. He has a, he has a child that is my half brother, but he only has a daughter. Mm -hmm. So my son is, uh, this man's only biological grandson. And anyway, he met him and my, my daughter and, He's just, uh, he's a pretty quiet guy, mm -hmm. but he's, uh, we've actually been able to go see him twice in the past, uh, you know, year, maybe it's been really cool. Now, when was the first time you got to see him in person? Uh, not well, just about a month after I met my mother. And that was in 97. Yes. Okay. So you've seen him in person. How many times since then? Oh, since then, probably just a handful, okay. yeah, four or five. And is that because of distance or because of other considerations? Let's see. I well, distance obviously, you know, he that has he's about three hours away. Mm -hmm. um, I really, you know, once I I realized, you know, he's getting older, and yeah. I just I just um, I had some questions, mm -hmm. and the thing is, he married a, a woman who had three children. And what she adopted and then had one of their own. So they, they have a large family. And I, I, they were, like I said, when I first met them, they were more than welcoming, uh, very gracious, but I, I just didn't want to, uh, I felt kind of like I was getting in the way, you know, oh. I mean, not that I was, but I think, no. I think, I mean, I mean, they wouldn't think that, but I don't, but anyway, what I mean is, and, and add on top of the fact, he's a very reserved kind of guy. And I just, didn't feel at the beginning uh, that you know I didn't I didn't I didn't know how to connect with him. I got you. I, I, I figured that out. Then. Yeah. And he's older now, and he's just um, uh, it's really cool. You know, he, like he's still quiet, but he's I can pull stuff out of him every now and then. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You know, um, that is just an amazing story, and a part again for our audience of why I really wanted to do this interview with you was because of your personality. I mean, it's just very you're very sincere. 
uh, and willing to talk about something that's really very difficult. You're Native American. You know, your parents are Native American, um, but you were adopted by a white family. You grew up in this family. Uh, and I'm wondering, from a, a cultural, racial point of view, what was it like? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. I will say that my parents, uh, all they all they knew was that my mother was um, a, a Pueblo, one of the Pueblo, from the Pueblo Indians. And I don't know if your viewers or listeners know, there are basically 19 Pueblos in New Mexico. Um, um, the Pueblos are kind of descended from, as I understand, the, the cliff dwellers, Cliff, cliff dweller people from way back. They used to call them the Anasazi, but I believe that's a Navajo word, and I don't know that it's really being used that much anymore. But the Navajos, Hopis, and Pueblo Indians are 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 are, are related, but there's there's slight differences. But and within the Pueblos, there are there are like four or five different language groups, and then there are languages within those and dialects within those. And uh, the, the interesting thing about Pueblos is that. Um, you know, they 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 weren't moved from their homelands, so they've been there a long time, and that culture, uh, and those traditions are pretty strong. But all my all my parents knew was that this woman was from one of the pueblos. They didn't know which one. That's really all they knew. And uh, I will say that as a child, man, they took me to powwows. They took me all over the place and tried to introduce me to stuff because they just did, they did the best they could because they just did not know. Mm-hmm much about you know it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know and um i i i I, growing up in that small town i will say that in elementary school you know we had kids from all races there man there were a lot of uh there were a lot of indian kids around there there were uh obviously majority uh white kids but there were there were mexican kids there were black kids there were and i told somebody one time i said man you know back in those days if we got in a fight with someone it was just it had nothing to do with the race. It was just because you didn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, the way it's supposed know, to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but when we, I will say that when we moved up here to uh, 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 Midwest City, I I realized quickly. I said, "Wow, the, I, I just kind of. I mean, I love Midwest City, but it's just uh, mm. really through uh, the end of sixth grade and through." junior high and high school uh it should there it was very much um well no i high school is a little different because there's a tinker air force base is, is there in midwest city so mm-hmm. you've got a lot of um people coming through but yeah it was still um there weren't that many uh native uh, at least native kids that i could tell that they were native mm-hmm. you know? so uh, did you run into a lot of racism or any I will say that I, I have been fortunate enough that I have not run into any, you know, blatant in your face stuff. Very, very rarely. In fact, that only happened. Uh, it's only happened a few times, but that's been through my career because I've been in, uh, you know, TV for 34 years now. And mm-hmm. I, my, I worked in broadcast TV news for a number of years and, and that's where I ran into it. <laughs> Yeah. Because, but you know, you, you end up putting yourself in situations there because you end up going to places where you may not go normally, and those things happen. Yeah. But no, I've 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 encountered a lot of yeah. veiled racism, but you know where it's not totally where you know. Thirty minutes later, you go, "Did he just say what I?" 
you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Trust me. I know that. <laughs> and it's not it's not just something that happens in Midwest City. You know, yeah, yeah, this, this yeah, happens yeah. definitely here on the East Coast. And it even happens in Washington, D.C., Absolutely. And New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and happens all over the place. But speaking of the country in a more, more broad sense, I want to ask you this, this um, the appropriation of Native American culture. You know, you see football games where people are doing what they call the tomahawk chop and doing these chants. You look at products like the Jeep Cherokee. You look at uh, all sorts of things where Native American names are used. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, I will tell. I can tell you. I can speak for myself because I, I know a lot of people who are in very, very, very passionate on one end. But then I know some people who say, "Hey, at least they're talking about us. Mm-hmm. We're not invisible to them." And so I, I, I can see both arguments. I can only tell you what I think. Uh, then, then obviously the Washington football team. That was a word that hmm. should never have been used, yes. and I'm glad it's gone. Yes. Um, but for me, uh, I believe it's not so much the name as the behavior that goes along with it. Uh, I have a friend who um, she and some her students, she, they go to every Kansas City Chiefs game and they protest and they get cussed at and yelled at and stuff thrown at them. But they do it because they believe in what they're doing, um, because we actually our, my organization, we did a story with the Chiefs a few years ago. They have. During November, they had a every year they have a like a Native Americans Day at one of the games, and so they do have some um, um, presentations. But they're pregame when there's basically no one in the stands, mm-hmm. and they still bang that huge, ugly drum, and they do the tomahawk chop. And I, I, I that's what bothers me. Um, and you see, here's I, like I said, I, some of these names don't bother me, but it's. If you dress up and you throw on a war, what you call war paint, and you throw on a war bonnet that you bought at you know at some you know local you know store, and then and then you go around making stupid noises, and you know that's what bothers me because you don't even know what you're doing, and you know you know headdresses, war bonnets, those are not only certain tribes, you know, like Plains tribes were those, and mm-hmm. you know those are earned in battle, you know, and we're not battle, but we're status you know and people just throw on any any sort of uh you know thing that they think is is native american looking and they put it on they go check me out i'm an indian i'm like man you it's just it's just silly it's yeah. just silly that's what that's the way i see it and yeah. and i the the problem is 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 when you try to tell them man you're you're not that's not right then People take, then they get offended. I'm, it's just, it's a very much, a, a, you run into a, well, I can do what the heck I want when I feel like it. Well, then things escalate and. Yeah. That's yeah. just. So there you go. Yeah. That's that, how I see it. That is, that is a very well put, um, that, that is a very well put analysis of how you feel. And thank you for sharing that. How can we, as people who uh, live, and in my case, and the case of many, 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 many other people, deeply respect Native American cultures and traditions and people. Um, how can we help? What can we do? Hmm. Well, I think um, probably starts with 
realizing that, uh, you know, there are nearly six, they're like, I think it's somewhere around 570 something. There were nearly 600 tribes in this country. And, you know, you know, back in the day, there were probably, you know, twice that many that, you know, they're no longer around. When you say back in the day, what do you mean? Well, before genocide and, you know, the 14, 1500, 1600s, you know, okay. before, you know, disease was brought over and smallpox. You know, yeah. All that kind of stuff. And um, so you're talking you know, about, I mean, in the early stages of what is now the United States. Yeah. And I, I, I think people need to realize it. Um, just like, um, I'm trying to say there are so many tribes, but, and they are so different. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the word a lot of people use these days is pan-Indian, which means, it, and I may be unclear on this, but it's, re, you know, when you people think that everyone lives in teepees, no, that is a plains thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Navajos live in Hogans, you know, and they, on, on the East Coast, they live in longhouses, um, you know, uh, and Pueblos live in, they live in adobe buildings. It's just, it's all different. You know, yeah. I mean, um you can't assume, you know, you cannot assume that just because you have a friend and uh, someone who's native who lives in New York, that they know the guy, they know a guy that you just met in California who's an Indian guy, you know? and they don't speak the same language. They didn't grow up the same way. And one of them may have grew up in a city, may, may have one have grown up in a city, maybe one was raised traditionally. Uh, I think, um, and I, I, here's, you know, we, I, I believe that the numbers I saw that native people are about 2% of the entire population. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that, then you understand why there's like a disconnect. Um, someone asked me the other day, they were talking about um, their, their kids in, in grade school were uh, studying about, you know, since this Native American Heritage Month, they were doing some chapters on Native American stuff. And they said, is there anything that I really should make sure that they try to learn. I'm like, well, I'm not an expert, but I said, you know, I think these kids need to know that, you know, native people are contemporary and current, man. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're not gone. I mean, uh, I just, we're, you know, reservation dogs is on Hulu, man. We're on TV, Rutherford (laughs) falls, you know, I mean, stuff is happening. Yeah. Uh, And you're on colors. Yeah, how about that? Look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for what you shared with us. Uh, I want to share a really quick story with you. Several years ago, um, I had the opportunity to fly with the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. And um, that was a singular experience that I will never, ever forget. And so a few years ago, I went out to uh, Olympia, Washington with my wife for a uh, college reunion. And I happened to go to the Evergreen State College. They have a long house there. And I saw this symbol at the long house on the front of it. And the whole time we were there, I kept thinking, why does this thing look familiar? I can't. Yeah, it was a Thunderbird symbol problem. I couldn't figure out why, where I knew it from. Why does this look familiar? Why does this look familiar? And at some point in the 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 day, 
um, a, a plane, a jet flew over. I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> it. it was the Thunderbirds. And she's like, you idiot. That's uh, that's a Thunderbird on the front of this longhouse. And I was like, oh, gosh. Yeah. But, you know, education is everything. And, you know, what you've done today is a tremendous service to us. And, you know, we need to know more about uh, all of these nearly 600 tribes. And we're not going to stop until we continue to educate our people on that on on them. Um, wh- where are you now in your in your journey, your life here? Hmm. Uh, well, I'm not where I want to be. I'll tell you, that. <laughs> I, you know, I'm uh, basically, let's see. I'm basically a half coach. Of team. I mean, well, let's, you know what, when you talk about blood quantum, man, that's a, that's a colonized thing too. So, I mean, who else, what, what other species besides animals and, you know, dogs that we talked about pedigree, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to anyway, but what I'm saying there, it is, it, it exists. So I'm basically a half coach of tea and a quarter Choctaw and a quarter Caucasian, but I can't prove it, but I'm pumped. That's, that's, that's an Indian joke. But because, uh, you know, white people always say, hey, I'm quarter. I'm, you know, I'm 16th Cherokee, but I can't prove it. So anyway, um, I, you know, I, I and, and I work for the Cheyenne Arapaho tribes now. And I'm so my job working for them is to I have to learn what who they are. And, you know, I've learned a little bit of language here and there. There are two. Me, most people don't know there are two, two different tribes. They just they've just been allies mm-hmm. since the early 1800s. But they. Uh, we're Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho here and up North on, um, I believe the, the Cheyenne, the Northern Cheyenne are in Montana and the Northern Wyoming, uh, Northern Arapahoes are in Wyoming. But anyway, uh, I, I certainly don't feel that I've learned nearly enough about, uh, T because I lived, only lived there for a short while. And I will say that I have been back a few times. Um, my plan when I moved back to Oklahoma was you know, go visit, take my kids so they can learn more stuff, mm-hmm. which I didn't learn. But, you know, life happens and that there's distance and it just, I haven't done it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I feel a little guilty about that. Uh, and I've told them that, you know, a lot of this is going to fall on you, you know, um, because this is who you are. So you should learn some stuff. Uh, I, I will say that uh, my um, uncle, when I, I was talking to him when he was still alive out there at the Pueblo, um, uh, they have every Pueblo has a feast day. There's, there were, you know, uh, a lot of them are uh, Catholic because they were uh, Spaniards. Um, they were basically ruled by the Spaniards for so long, and so there, each one of these Pueblos has missions in it, and. Each Pueblo has a feast day. It's um, named in honor of one of the saints, and uh, they're different different days, but it's an entire day of dancing and, and, and food and stuff. And my uncle always said, Dan, you're going to come dance. And I told him that I would, and then I didn't, and then he died. And I'm like, I still have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have – I owe him that. Um, now, now, who was this? Who was this? It was my my uncle, my okay. my my mother's uh, brother, and he was a highly respected elder in the tribe. And uh, I still have to do that, but yeah. I have to, I need to learn some of the dances before I can do that. Well, stop playing around, so, man, and go do yeah, it. Yeah, that's a commitment, man. That's a commitment I got to do. 
Yeah, stop playing around and go dance, man. Because I'm not yeah. joking here. This yeah. is life is short. Absolutely. I mean, and with a with with an the amazing life you've had, sharing that life and all of those elements in it with you know your ans with with the people and of course with the ancestors. Yeah, they're they're not here, but they they know what's happening. I mean, and yeah. with your children and your grandchildren and 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 folks like us who need to know your story. Go dance, man. This is what needs to happen, and we need to see it when you do it. So when you do it, we want to hear about it so we can talk <laughs> about it again on Colors. So the last thing, we're both in broadcasting. You're in television. I've been in television. I work in radio now, and I'm interested in what your thoughts are about how Native Americans are represented coverage-wise in our business. JJ, how much time do we have? <laughs> 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 well, I, I will tell you this. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you asked because, um, first off, there's not nearly enough representation. And, you know, I could talk about that until I'm blue in the face, man. Uh, I preach about that every time I get a chance. I'd like, I'm very fortunate with the, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes that I do get to speak to a lot of college kids and high school kids, you know, native kids at uh, career fairs and stuff like that. And I always tell them, I, I, I asked them, I said, do you guys think there are enough stories about native people on TV? And they say, no. I said, do you think um, there are too many stereotypes on TV? They said, yeah. And I said, well, do you think there are stories out there about Native people that need to be told? And they say, well, yeah. And I said, well, who's going to do that? Who's going to do those stories? And usually I get one student who raises their hand that really <laughs> you know, uh, sheepishly and goes, um, us. And I say, yes, you and you and you and you and you. JJ, the, the percentage the percentage of native people working in television is less than one stinking percent. It's barely a half a percent. And I tell these kids, I said, look, even if every one of us here got a degree in journalism, even if everybody in this whole building got a degree in journalism, it's barely going to move the needle. Now, look, I'm not kidding myself that we're ever going to get to 20% or 15 or 10 but man, let's get the three or four or five. Come on. I mean, I said, here's the deal. If you are not there to advocate for your stories, then your stories don't get told. And if they don't get told, no one cares. And it's not that they don't care. It's because they didn't know that story was around and that they needed to care about it. And if you tell them about it, they will care. And that's how things get done. Wow. Somebody say amen. Wow. <laughs> now it's time to take up the collection. <laughs> We're going to pass the plate pass here, the plate. <laughs> <laughs> Darren Brown, you are a true gem. Thank you, brother. Appreciate this. This has been fun. This is like, uh, wow. This is spiritual, man. I mean. Well, this... it, 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 I feel good. I feel good. <laughs> I'm so glad you and I connected. Yeah, no, I this this is what we want to do on Colors is we want to connect people and we want people to know all of our stories. And again, you know, you told an amazing story and you've given us some food for thought and so many different things that we can do with that. So thank you again, my brother. I'm glad to do it, man. Back in a moment with some details about another amazing show coming up. But first, this reflection on race. You're listening to Colors. My name is Katie Musselman. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, 
a suburb of Philadelphia. I grew up in a white family in a very white community. I have two sisters, but I was the only one who was adopted. While I didn't have many issues with this growing up, recently I allowed myself to recognize that both of my sisters married racist men. This is sad and disorienting and has led me to really question what my sisters thought of me and the true nature of our relationships. It bewilders me as to how two women raised with a sister of a different ethnicity could marry spouses who harbor hate for other races, and it dredges up all sorts of doubts for me about family relationships. Additionally, my husband and I have three children, two biological and one adopted son who is black. This just heightens the feelings and tension. Of course, we do not want to expose them to racism, especially from their family. This family dynamic has pushed my husband and I to discuss our priorities and values in a way that hits closer to home than I ever could have imagined. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. My name is Susan Terrell, and I'm a white cisgender woman living in Northeast Pennsylvania. My name is Jerry. I'm an African-American from Bowie, Maryland, by way of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. My name is Sara Kamali. I'm a first-generation American whose parents were born in Afghanistan. My name is Shelby Steele. I never give my ethnicity. I am located at the moment in Encino, California. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. If you have any questions or comments about the program and you have some guest suggestions maybe or some questions that we should ask or something we should look into, you want to contact us, reach out to us. We're at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors... Tony McAleer grew up affluent and privileged in Canada and the UK, but something was missing in his life. So he turned to white supremacy. I was not a tough kid growing up. Uh, and when when I came across you know skinheads and met them, and I was terrified of them, but I was also drawn to them because they had the one thing I didn't, and that was toughness. And what I got from joining uh, with those guys is people feared me for the first time, not because of me, but because of who I, who I was. And I got power when I felt powerless. He spent many years promoting white supremacy until something happened. The birth of my my daughter and my son 15 months later, and by the time they were four and six, I was a full-time single father. He started thinking about the world he was creating for them, and he had had enough. He wrote The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremist to radical compassion. We talked to him about it all and what he's doing to make amends. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. That's going to do it for another episode, and we leave today with great anticipation as we do every week for the next episode and when we can get together again. So in leaving today, we want to say thank you to some people. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Hagar Chamali, Lisa Weiner, Sean Anderson, Rose Varner-Gaskins. Thanks to Thomas Warren. Thanks also to Brennan Hazelton. We also want to thank Adisa Hargett-Robinson, Fonda Mwangi. We want to say thank you to Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley. And for our music, we want to say thank you to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, we want to say thank you to you for listening. <laughs>
loyally. We appreciate it. We're continuing to grow, but we can't without your listenership. So please tell your folks, your friends and families about it. And, uh, and just one other thing. Remember, keep talking to each other. And most importantly, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us on the Podcast DC app. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.